yeah. Here we are. It's beautiful spring in Washington, D.C. Just today is just gorgeous. It's 70 degrees. The blossoms are finally fading. And I am thrilled to say that we have one of my oldest friends. We go back a very long way. On the podcast today, the Dishcast, Mark Lilla. He's a journalist, political scientist, and historian of ideas. He's also a quite brilliant and beautifully pellucid writer. He's taught at NYU, the University of Chicago, and he's currently professor of humanities at Columbia. And now he's on his sabbatical, so we're speaking, well, Mark is speaking to us from Rome. He's a frequent contributor to the New York Review of Books and Liberties, Leon Weaseltier's excellent long-form journalism uh, and on-paper magazine, and the New York Times. He's written many books, including, famously, we talk about this, The Once and Future Liberal After Identity Politics, and two beautiful monographs, really. One, The Reckless Mind, Intellectuals in Politics, about radicals, and The Shipwreck Mind on Political Reaction, a really wonderful detour through some of the the big shots of reactionary thought, as it were. Today, we're going we're gonna to just talk more generally, but also he's written two rather beautiful recent essays. One is on indifference, which appeared in Liberties, which I want to talk to him. Another introduction to Thomas Mann's Reflections. Refle forgive me, what's the full title of that? Refle just Reflections. Reflections of a Non-Political Man. Thank you. Reflections of a Non-Political Man. Which I learned a lot about Thomas Mann in that, I have to say. I had no idea about his crazy relationship with his brother. Jesus. Anyway, Mark, welcome. Oh, it's good to see you, old friend. I'm looking forward to this. We, we met, right, in, at Harvard in 1984, when we were both about to embark upon a, a PhD. In, well, actually, I didn't know I was going to be embarking on a PhD, but you did. At Harvard in political thought. I remember being with you in Judith Schlaw's seminar on ancient political thought. Do you remember that? Oh, I do. I do. And I wondered who that young man across the room was with a paperclip holding his glasses together. <laughs> yes. I don't know if you remember that. I do. <laughs> I do. I, that, I had that all through Oxford too. I, I just broke my, I'm not, I'm very, I'm not good at fixing things. So I, it, it worked and I didn't really care. Yeah. And Mark, you, you were, you know, remarkably as you are now in a way, you seemed, you seemed an old soul even back then. Now, you were a little older than the rest of us because you weren't coming directly out of undergraduate work. That's right. So tell us a little bit about where you grew up and how you got to be in that seminar at Harvard and your journey there. Well, it's quite a, it's quite a tale and quite, you know, in, in the United States, typical, I think, of a lot of people. I grew up in, I was born in Detroit. My parents moved to a Levittown four miles outside of Detroit when I was about six years old, a place called Warren, Michigan, most famous for as the birthplace of Eminem. He lived near Eight Mile. I lived on 12 Mile Road. So that is how close I got to greatness. You know, it was a, you know, sort of typical blue collar neighborhood. Most people, my parents had just, you know, barely gotten into white collar jobs. My mother was a nurse. My father had started on the line at Chevy. And then, uh, unhappy about that, learned how to draw and became a draftsman in the machine tool industry. But, you know, er everyone else, you know, they came home with overalls. And it was just kind of the you know, natural thing in the neighborhood. And then when I got to high school, the offerings were, were rather slim. And the most important thing in the school was the auto repair shop. And if right. you graduated there with a year in shop, your, your career was set. But, you know, through happenstance and luck, and I had a debate teacher who inspired me and wanted to get out. The other thing is that at the age of 13, I fell in with a group of Jesus freaks at my high school, and we started reading the Bible together. And sort of my way of getting through the 70s was to, <laughs> was to be with these people. And back then, it was not young conservatives who, who were doing that. It was actually the freakiest kids, eyes glazed most of the time, who read it. And I remember going on a march down 12 mile road with a huge wooden cross chanting something I can't remember. 
But then I joined a, a little community and for the next seven years of my life, that was my life. And I went through high school and half a college, never reading anything apart from the Bible, really just doing mathematics and economics and public policy. But it got me the hell out of Detroit. And so I went to the Kennedy School for two years because I was very interested in social policy, especially urban policy. And expected. how did someone from your background get into the Kennedy School? I mean, that's a that's a that's a very working class background. I mean, it, it, the con the contrast between y your erudition, your sophistication, your elegance, and Detroit is pretty stark. Is is do you think one came in reaction to the other? Well, well, well certainly, you know, I wanted. To, to get out. And obviously I was, the Bible piqued my curiosity. You know, mm -hmm. I, I think I would have been a much more conventional person had I not spent, and well, now most of my life, struggling with one book. Mm. And it just opened all sorts of horizons and questions. And so I started as a student living in a crappy neighborhood in Detroit, going to Wayne State University. I then got a scholarship to go into the University of Michigan. And there I met the sons and daughters of the automakers, the Dodges and the Fords, who would give mm. me lectures about the working class. And that somehow <laughs> set off a spark. And I got much more political and got curious and sent in an application on the fly, and well, here we are. That's that's really astonishing story. It's funny because the seventies there was a lot of Jesus stuff going around. Actually, the other week we had John Ward on, who who disappeared into a fundamentalist community, a bit like you did. Yeah, um, I saw the email for that. I haven't listened to or read it yet, but I've about, saved it. Yeah, he's he's a fascinating character. It's also true that someone like Matt Sitman who had these experiences in some ways to experience religious faith intensely in your youth definitely i think helps you understand civilization more generally as you grow older i mean one of the, i think the, the hard things that i have with many of my peers is they have literally no understanding of religion really they haven't yeah. really they've never read the bible at all yeah. it's a, kind of staggering to me how many of my peers have not read a gospel now i'm not saying they should for any proselytizing reasons i'm just saying for civilizational reasons to understand to some extent the appeal of the alternative to many of our modern practices and 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 and, and ways of thought it's very hard to get outside of that unless you have some grounding in some text outside of it altogether. Yeah, well, also the people you're talking about can't understand themselves because they're speaking the Bible without knowing it, right? Yes. And the thing is, when you read the actual Bible, what seems to be your simple morality, especially at this moment, I would say, is challenge because nothing's ever simple there. It's not mm. simple to be a saint. It's not simple to know what the right thing to do is. It's not simple to know what society should look like. And you know that when you read that book, because you see people struggling in both testaments with those questions. But if you get just a secularized version detached from all those complexities, well, you become, you know, you become a kind of ungrounded moralist, really incapable of contributing, I feel, to the present. Which parts of the Bible do you think most strongly gave you that complexity? Were, were, there, were there figures in the Gospels or in the Old Testament, to use the Catholic term for these two parts of the, the big book, that particularly struck you? Well, that's, that's an interesting question, because the book I'm writing now, I'm, I'm reflecting on this. And my first attraction, I have to say, was to St. Paul. Mm -hmm. And this galvanizing idea that you can have an utter transformation in your life. And mm. when you do and you make a decision, everything mm. changes and you have a new kind of knowledge and all of that. And I was very attracted to that. And I think since that day, my heart has been Jansenist and my head <laughs> has been Jesuit and they are not on speaking terms. And Maybe because because I'm, I, I translate Jansenism for our for our for our for our listeners who may not oh, be well, aware well, of that. Uh, I mean, Jansenism, you know, is, you know, was many things, but you know, is known for its 
sense of predestination. But more than that, it was about having an immediate relation with the divine. And so someone like Pascal was just in had mystical experiences. You know, Pascal is sort of an example of that. Where for Jesuits, you know, it's like being in Italy. You know, the world is what it is. You sort of manage, you do your best, you don't take yourself too seriously. There's always a way around everything, right? Everything uh, is about discernment of, of how you might navigate this particular passage of your life or this particular decision. There is no, the, yes, there is no blinding sudden transformation of the human soul, but there is, but the, the exercises of St. Ignatius are really quite grueling exercises in self-examination, as powerful as any meditative technique that one can find. Yeah, it, it, it was a kind of self-revelation finally reading that and seeing my my young self certainly and in a sense i'm doing a book now which is called which i've just finished which is called ignorance and bliss on wanting not to know and so he you know plays a role as showing how far you can go in submitting yourself and submitting your reason in the name of faith or more abstractly, something higher. So he's a very interesting case. You're, you're speaking of Pascal. No, right? no, 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 no. I'm speaking Sorry. of Ignatius. Oh, Ignatius himself. Oh, yes, yes, absolutely. And Pascal, of course, has this this beautiful phrase, you know, in the Pensée, uh, l'usage est soumission de raison, hmm. which is which is that moment of which you, yes, we're we are rational beings, but at some point we long to yield. Yeah, to the arms of the Savior, I think, is into the embrace of the Savior. And there was, you couldn't find a more extraordinarily rational person than Dick, than, than Pascal, and yet he also acknowledged, because he experienced the power of religious revelation and transformation. I never, it's funny, because my own faith never had that moment. Mm. In, in fact, it, it, I was brought up thinking that moment's kind of, why would, it, it, there was no, personal relationship with Jesus in Catholicism. Yeah. We didn't need it. We had the Eucharist. I mean, we couldn't get more intimate than that. But there was also a sense of God being a little beyond our my understanding. And of course, I was brought up in post-Vatican too, so there was also very little, you know, thunder, th- th- thunder strikes and, yeah. and, and terrible guilt, although we had our, our amount. But the idea that suddenly one could overnight become something completely different, which is, you know, which is Paul's influence on Western civilization, I suppose. Yeah, and for me anyway, kid in Detroit, the idea that my life could be completely <laughs> different was awfully attractive. <laughs> no, but more than Trust that. Me, uh, East Princeton was much more idyllic, but I, I wanted to get out of it as, as much yeah. as you wanted to get out of Detroit. Yeah, but 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 also for me, it, it also combines with, with my background that I also found myself very torn, and that's sort of what the book I'm doing now is about, that on the one hand, an attraction to learning and confronting the world the way it is. And on the other hand, having come from a world where people don't ask those sorts of questions, and most of them live very happily. And in the confrontation with difficult, toxic knowledge, it is so tempting to want to withdraw into the womb on the one hand, or have a transforming ecstatic experience that will put you beyond the present, right? That's all very tempting. And I succumb to all those temptations. It feels especially true now that the, the, the via media, as it were, is particularly bombarded with either the impulse in our current culture, our public discourse, let's call it that, for want of a better word, public discourse. I have there are two obvious responses to it. And one is exactly that, the womb, to just get, get away from it. It's toxic. It's incredibly destructive. I, I've, I'm in the middle of it, I, there are moments when I wonder what the hell I'm doing with my life because I can't resist the fight often. And, and I feel sometimes it's important to fight. But at the same time, this absolute yearning to get out of this. At the same time, there is a, there is a desire to get out of it the other way, as you say, to become so eclipsed in one ideology or another, so give over to one set of ideas or another, that you, it becomes easier because you just know what you have to say. Yeah. Well, well let me make it a little easier for you to disengage by thinking about this. <laughs> and, and that is because I've, th- I've been away for, you know, since September. 
and I look at the times every few days and kind of shake my head and I'm getting emails from friends worked up about things and I go out and you know, it's Sunday afternoon, <laughs> young people are taking their grandparents on a walk. You know, they just, you know, there's a sense of proportion here. But, but, but one reason to disengage, even if you wanna be engaged, is that if you are constantly fighting and engaging with the latest tweet, the latest thought by some know nothing from nowhere, you in fact are letting them set your agenda. Right? Because if they say X, you say not X. But then if they say Y, you say not Y. So who's, who's the ruler in that, you know, master-slave relationship? It's them. And so, you know, in order to get a perspective, which is what we most need right now, to, to, we're living in a very strange and what will be a very historic moment, I think. And all the more reason to step back and to get a kind of bird's eye view and to kind of try to put things in historical perspective and to see the bigger picture. But it's, you know, the kind of thing we're doing right now, podcasts and so on, that makes it harder. Well, it does, unless we're making this particular message on a um, podcast. And unless I, we're talking and, right here, yeah. And, yes, we're the, we're the exception that proves that we're, <laughs> we do, I do try here to get some perspective in some ways, talking about people's lives and philosophies and so on, and also to sort of get away from instant catastrophism and the yeah. the imperative to choose. I mean, one of the more egregiously awful memes floating in the atmosphere is the is the Ibram Kendi idea that you you can't you have to be you're either actively racist or you're actively anti-racist. Yeah. You can't be anywhere else. You must there is no other space for you to live. That strikes me as what you're saying we should resist. Yeah, and we should resist engaging with people like that. I mean, not entirely. Look, I've paid my dues. You know, I wrote the Once in Future Liberal and got slammed for it. I was one of the authors of the Harper's Letter that came out a few years ago about not so much freedom of expression, but toleration of expression, right? So I've, I've done my bit in that. But that's, by the way, that's a really helpful way of putting it not freedom of expression, but toleration of expression. Because what we are arguing about is the ability for people to say things in public that we really strongly disagree with, but also to defend their place in in perspective in the entire discourse. That's that's all we're saying. Yeah. You know, I'm reminded of suddenly of something that elderly student of Leo Strauss once told me, and that is he had just been appointed to his first academic teaching job. And he asked Strauss, what is the most important advice you could give to me as a teacher? And Strauss said, when you walk into the room, you need to be convinced that there's at least one student who understands this text better than you do. And if you do not enter into a conversation or a debate with someone in that spirit, Neither of you is going to make any progress. And if you live in a time in which no one does, which I think is our moment, then you've got to think about alternatives to engage. What is that alternative? How do, would you spell it out? Oh, I guess I'm just, you know, talking about myself as old men tend to do. You, you're, my own view is that if you broadly extrapolate from your personal experience, you often have something to say. So yeah. tell not everybody, every, a lot of people are in your spot, my spot. They, they, they are, they're both upset in some ways by what's going on intellectually and, and politically, but they're, they're also leery of entering the fray right now, especially mm. because it's so horrible. And the, but my point would be simply that that's part of the problem, is it not? That, that, that there's this intimidation out of the arena for, for those who want to make somewhat more interesting or developed arguments. And that therefore one should try and resist that. Yeah. I, someone has to do it. Someone has to be engagé for someone not to be engagé. Let's, let's put it that way. And, sure. and there is a particular role for the intellectual, it seems to me, in that position. But so, I mean, I'm thinking of like the distinction between Sartre and Aron, 
for example. Mm-hmm. I don't think Aaron ever disengaged, but there was always a sense of his ability to see things from some distance or from some perspective. Well, in fact, the title of his, his autobiography or memoirs was uh, Le Spectateur Engagé, which is the engaged spectator. And he begins by saying, by posing, you know, the dilemma that you just articulated so well, which is you need to do both at the same time. How do you do that? And, and, And I think what's crucial is Americans, for Americans, who do not inherit a kind of thick literary and intellectual culture, it's crucial that they get a good education. And by good education, I mean one that one gives them alternatives to think about in human experience. I don't just mean politics, but, you know, the varieties of human experience and the varieties of cells that we, that we can, you know, that we hold within ourselves, but then to teach the habit of pulling back, right? And, uh, you know, I, I see it's very hard in my students that some of them have a kind of Benedict option right now that they want to withdraw into a kind of loose Catholic cloister of very serious people and to talk about certain things, but to pull back entirely. And then there are others who are sort of straining at the leash to get involved in things. And so... It's very hard, but it's very important as a teacher to teach them to become someone like a home and to become especially self-aware that that's the challenge. You know, whatever you think of Soth's commitments, and some of them were very good and other ones were mad, there was no self-awareness there. That's something that you feel when you read a home that he didn't have the pen of Sartre, he couldn't move the spirits the way it was, but there is there a kind of self-awareness that is bracing when you encounter it. And that's what you hope to instill, and not only in your students, but you would hope to move the culture in that direction. But this certainly is not a moment where that's easy, that's for sure. Do we we just read our own? Do we read someone like... I mean, Orwell is more complicated, but not entirely unrelated in that in that way. He was very committed in some ways, but also very prepared to break ranks to 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 ask difficult questions. How does one do that? But who should one read to emulate in that sense of the spectateur engagé, the the person who is capable of of presenting arguments to address our current predicament while not being captured by the the zeitgeist I mean you just I mean I'm just thinking of like the history of Thomas Mann that you 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 have you wrote about which is I, I you've written an introduction to the reflections of the non-political man and and I was struck by his evolution hmm. I mean some of it is muddled up with his brother but some of it is simply in 1914 he was and I think most People would be shocked by this. I was shocked by it. I didn't realize that, but that he was an absolute gung ho war in Iraq. <laughs> so to speak, yeah. I can see it <laughs> exactly 2003, me or him in 1914. Just let's go for it. It's essential. And then, then suddenly you get all this completely bifurcated discourse in which everyone on one side is obviously wrong, and in other words, everybody good, and you you are inflamed, and you are traumatized, and you are active, and and. It gives me hope, to be honest, that someone could have been so dumb and so carried away and then matured and evolved, although it took time, into a much more, a more spectator position. Tell me, did, does he, is that a, is, was his journey influential to you? Well, no, but there was some, you know, self-recognition, I suppose, in, it was years ago that, of course, I was a fan of the novels. And in particular, I mean, you know, Magic Mountain is just catnip for anyone with a brain. And, but, but then in reading his letters and his diaries, I, I mean, I, I encourage all your readers, just pick them up, just read like one diary entry a night. It's really you see someone thinking about these things and struggling. But I guess if you want to become Thomas Mann, you don't read Thomas Mann in politics. If you want to be Thomas Mann in politics, you don't read Thomas Mann in politics. What you do is you read Thomas Mann, or better, you read the books Thomas Mann read, and those are novels. And what's interesting about his political commitments 
is that they were incredibly simplistic. Even frankly, when he became a committed modern Democrat, you know, there's, you know, there's some you know, moments when you kind of have to squint when he, you know, is is going on the huskings in the United States on the U.S. government's dime in favor of the war effort, which was, you know, the effort to join. But you know, his speeches can be simple-minded. But what's interesting is that in his literary works, he shows that he knows more than he knows he knows, right? And so when he finally wakes up, the resources he's drawing on is what he already knows from his thinking about human nature. When he has written his short stories, when he's written his novels, and so on. And so, you know, I'm at you know, a stage now where I just feel what I really learn from at the moment is literature is just trying to, it is to somehow get my instrument tuned properly by seeing what other people actually vibrate to and the strange things they can end up doing on the basis of that. And, and more deeply, the connection between character and political commitment. I remember years ago, my mentor, Daniel Bell, told me something which I really resisted and argued with him about. He said, in the end, everyone's politics comes from their character. And by character, he did not mean moral character on a scale. He meant, you know, you, you, a character like in a novel, that, that you're, you know, your sort of fundamental dispositions, right? And what you learn from, from reading Dostoevsky is that there are all these people with all these political commitments and you get to look behind their backs and you get a sense of what they are as people and what is motivating them. And there are two things that you ought to draw from that. One is to sort of try to figure out something about your adversaries or those you don't understand and sort of how they tick inside and not just what their arguments are. But the other is to take a long look in the mirror. One of the things that's, that has happened to me and, and set me to work on the book that I've just finished is before beginning the book, I took out all the books and articles I'd read and I read through them. And I came away with the depressing sense that everything I'd written could be summarized in one sentence. Three words, in fact, curb your enthusiasm. <laughs> and, and that was a really uncomfortable moment in front of the mirror, right? It's not that my views have changed. It's not that I thought I was wrong, but it was clear that I was looking for occasions to beat my little drum. And it was time to get beyond that. And to think that, you know, and to think about what other questions are important, what other goods are important, a kind of self-liberation from your own, you know, pension, your pension. And yeah, and so that, that you know, that is something that's happened over the past few years and has got me thinking in a slightly different way about my engagements. That's, that's a hard lesson to come to terms with yourself, that, that you think that you real you see yourself as if you were in a novel and suddenly see your actual motivations in writing what you what you wrote is we are as humans we are you know, we are characters i mean i there's no question that the way i deal with thinking about things is very bound up in all sorts of i could think of all sorts of internal development psychological and to some extent we can never escape that right we can try we could we can try and get perspective on it but it's still part of who we are and and one doesn't as a writer you don't want to completely obscure who you are you want to temper it somewhat yeah but but you also want to put on the cap of other people right mm -hmm. you know the uh, spanish writer jorge semprun in, in one of his novels, there's a character who is asked, Marx, you know, this, they're all communists, and one of them asks another, so what is the dialectic? And he says, my friend, 
The dialectic is a way of the cat always landing on its paws. <laughs> and the impression I had in rereading some of my stuff is that I was always ending up on the same paws. That So the thing to, to think about is, well, what am I missing that, that might lead me to another co conclusion about some issue I've not thought about? And so I, I think it's also given me a little more sympathy in the clinical sense of, you know, people I've considered my intellectual and political adversaries or those that I engage with. It becomes a little easier to see when they're actually talking about some other problem, not your problem you've got with yourself and that you keep coming to the same conclusion about. There's some other thing going on there. So let's, you know, drop the, the Larry David ending and let's take on what what is there. So anyway, in, in my case, it's just been refreshing these past few years to start thinking in that way. Has any one of your opponents, your thinkers or writers, have you changed your opinion on in that reflection? Felt better about or...? Is that too? Is that too, is that too personal a question for public forum? No, no, no. Well, part of it, I think, is just wrapping my head around passions about personal identity now, which seems so, which are alien to me. I mean that, you know, I've had a lot of things to cope with and think about in my life, but what you know holes my little pigeon should be put in has never really been a interesting question for me, right? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, even though I've written about these things, same here to some extent. I, I inevitably being born and growing up at a time when the question of homosexual rights were became incredibly salient for two or three decades, I felt I had to have some position on it or sure. I should figure out what I actually think politically about this. But I did so as a way, virtually normal, as an attempt to say that politics is not everything. I think at one point I try and say that like politics can't do the work of life, only life can do the work of life. That, that to some extent you could you could, and even if your identity as a homosexual is somehow a, attached to these rather abstract ideological principles and not about the, and hasn't really understood the paradoxes, the weirdnesses, the the joys, the the sadness of a homosexual life in its totality. You're missing something very important. You're flattening this experience. It is not something to be used politically. Now, there is a point at which you need politics to get to a, a basic point of civil equality, the, the same core rights of everybody else. But after that, let the mystery endure. Let, let, yeah. let, 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 let the varieties of ways of grappling with that identity manifest themselves as interestingly as possible. Get on with your life, not with... And the, 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 the replacement of life with politics is also part of the problem, is it not? I mean, that, that's, yeah. that's why, for me, the, one of the, the, the one critical liberal principle, one of the, that I really do hold strongly is that politics isn't everything. And, and it can't be everything. You're, in your essay, you end up with this rather beautiful peroration where you say, nothing is everything. Yeah. <laughs> that there is this, it's, it's both Berlin, but it's also Oakshot. This sense of the, the variety of perspectives the way in which you can look at the world in radically different ways, and the political in some ways and the ideological is one of the least interesting. There are many other ways of looking at the world. Yeah, you know, I, I remember the time when we talked about that, when you were getting so much grief from the gay community about your position about marriage. And what, yeah. I, what I appreciated about your take on it, and still remember this, is that you seem to be saying at the same time, be yourself and get over yourself. Yes. <laughs> that, exactly. those, that those are not, you don't have to choose between those, but you have to do both. You can neither avoid those two, nor can you only choose one. You know, if you choose the chop suey, you're going to get the egg roll. That You just have to have both <laughs> of them, right? Yes. And, and, and I really appreciated that in, in you what you said. You need politics to get past politics. So that's the goal in a way. And... 
And what I want, and I, but again, when I look around me and I actually see regular homosexuals, as it were, going on with their lives, I'm struck by what you're struck with, by the people that you looked around you, looked around you in Detroit. No, this isn't the reality of their lives. They're not want, going around mm. talking about heteronormativity or 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 the 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 replacement of sex with gender. No, they are building. Now their- they have diapers to change, right? <laughs> Yes, they got diabetes. They got to. They got to. They got to. They got to. They got to they get the kids home from school, or they have to build in their own relationship, or they can engage in whatever you want to in in a in a in a in a cultural and sexual orgasm board of possible sub 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 subcultures. Go ahead, make my day. <laughs> but and we needed some policy, but now we don't. But the critique of that is constantly that you and I have the luxury of indifference because of our privilege, quote-unquote. Although it, it strikes me that when I when you read about your life and where you came from, privilege isn't the kind of word I would attach to it. But how do you counter the argument that, that a position of indifference is, in fact, simply collusion with injustice? Yeah, well, just to summarize my, what I said in, in the essay... Yeah, um, I was trying to articulate an older idea of indifference, which is not insensitivity to the feelings and experiences of others, but rather the right to disengage and not engage right now, to not have a position, to leave things open, and to also cultivate yourself. You know, the you know, what's very difficult in arguing with Americans is that given our Protestant heritage, is the sense that morality is and must be the judge of and the sole judge of a life well lived. And as you know, as you paraphrase me, morality isn't everything. I mean, it's important, but it's not everything. There there are multiple, and this is, you know, one of Isaiah Berlin's most important points, that there are multiple goods in life. And it's not possible to have all of them all the time. And you live with choices among them. And life would be poorer without that. Now, I think anyone who takes that attitude towards life learns to have a sense of proportion about sufferings. And my problem with those who tell me have, that I have a certain kind of privilege, well, two things. One is that they've never read a novel in which who has privilege is the question, right? I mean, just read Proust. I mean, I can think of all sorts of other novels that who is privileged and who is not is a very complicated thing, even in relation, you know, in a couple, right? But the other thing is that it's in really disengaging that we get a kind of sense of where the real, what real suffering is. I, I get, I'm not explaining this well, but, but let me start over with that, that gaining a perspective on everything is crucial. And part of that, part of one of the things you have to gain a perspective on is suffering and relative suffering. That's not in order that you diminish someone's experience. It's because you have limited energy and you have limited resources for relieving suffering. And so it's important to say to some young people today, I'm sorry, I cannot take your suffering seriously. The subjective experience, I do take. You tell me that you feel this, you feel this. But in a larger scheme, I cannot take it seriously. And it's not because I'm standing in an unprivileged position, because I know too much. I know too much about suffering. I've read too many history books. I've read too many novels. I've lived through too much for me to take that seriously. I'm sorry. If you want sympathy, talk to someone else, and you need sympathy. I'm not the person to talk to. And I hope at some point you'll gain perspective, and you will as you grow older, on what has been a problem for you and what is not. Yeah, I'm struck by how many young 
gay people today somehow believe they're under an unprecedented siege of oppression in America, that a discussion over the rights and wrongs of a medical procedure for children becomes a question of our genocide yeah. or not. There is, and the trouble with, and I don't want to sound pejorative towards the younger generation, I'm not, but the lack of any real sense of history, the, the idea you use, even use the word genocide in that context shows a remarkable lack of historical understanding. And I think what one is, or indeed the ability to have understood these things from, from other dimensions. I mean, suffering, for example, one can, I certainly understand it to transcend. It can obviously correlate with poverty, but it's also so much more complicated than that, that in that some ways the, and this is part of what the, the New Testament tells us, which is that, is that you never know. Sometimes the least among us are actually living the best lives as we understand them. And, and sometimes the people we understand to be most privileged are the living the worst lives imaginable, that there is complexity and power and tragedy in everything. And that's another thing that's people have a very hard time understanding, which is, which is tragic that things can happen. And again, do you think, I mean, my, one of my worries is that, for example, novel reading is finished. I mean, as a mass behavior, as anything, or even as a bourgeois activity, it's a tiny number. So, and I guess we might get these understandings or these glimpses of human nature from something like, you know, Breaking Bad or, or Game of Thrones, or some kind of long rhapsodic in which character actually is vital, and in which paradoxes and tragedy does actually happen, in which the people who should win do not win, the people who don't win are actually better off, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think the, lo the loss of, of, of reading fiction is, is, a, is a serious problem? It is. And, you know, I, I've always had in my head a kind of story of decline, you know, that in the beginning, God spoke and we listened. And then in the next stage, we read the scriptures and we ended up writing good laws. And then we lived under good laws and we ended, ended up writing great poetry. And then we read poetry and we ended up reading great novels. And those who grew up on novels ended up doing fantastic films. And those who grew up on the films ended up doing pretty decent television. And on and on and on, down to where we are now, where there are no resources there to be drawn from, right? right. And, and it's time to it's time to just climb back up the, up the chain. Hollywood but, now but, relies upon actual comic books for a huge amount of their, their output. Well, one of the good things about core curricula, you know, I, I teach in the core at Columbia, and I've had film students, is that they, in order to graduate, have to go through this experience of encountering complex thinking and complex characters and complex situations. If I were to do anything in Hollywood, I would, you know, and I'm happy for someone to set up a business for me, it would be to <laughs> run seminars on novels and just raising the level of, of thinking, which could really lead to a flowering of, of creativity. But getting back to something we were saying earlier about suffering and all of that, I think one thing that has happened for me since I wrote The Stillborn God is, sorry, that I wrote The Once and Future Liberal, is that I was under the impression, and the book reflects that, that this is just a passing American fever. We'll get over it eventually, but it's a very bad moment. Other more sensible countries will not go through this. Oh, yes, maybe some Protestant countries will because they you know, tend towards moral hysteria, but certainly Catholic countries will not, and so on. Turns out not to be true. And that is that the question of identity for young people is being felt everywhere right now. It, you know, I had a shocking realization when I thought about it that the most recognizable flag in the world today is the U.S. flag. The second is the LGBT flag, that that is more recognizable around the world and conjures up emotion and genuine feeling for more people than any other flag in the world. And it's flying everywhere you know, safely in some places, very unsafely in others. So 
I, I think one of the things, you know, I'm trying to think about it with drawing is to try to understand why this is happening, because it's a genuine phenomenon. One thing you can argue with people individually, this is no way to sort of conduct their lives and think about this at another level, if it's widespread enough, you've got a challenge to think about what it is about the way we live now, the changes in technology, economics, family structure, scientific discovery, we all know the list, has put people in a position where in lots of places people are having, you know, a very strange feeling and have new sorts of needs. And so in a sense, you know, were I younger, I would think of this as a time for real ambition because we're living in a time in which not only are all the assumptions about history and human nature from the Cold War no longer entirely relevant, many of them are, but we really lack an understanding of our age. I mean, at least in the age of ideology, you had different conceptions. You had too many people who knew what was going on and they were arguing with each other and trying to build different sorts of worlds. But living in a time where no one really knows fundamentally what's happening to us as human beings right now, and everyone is talking about, means that if you're to get a grip on it, you've got to sort of pull back and start thinking about those larger questions. And so I find myself, you know, now reading futurists, I find myself reading all these left-wing thinkers about liquid societies and acceleration and turbo capitalism and all those sorts of things, not for any political intent, but, but to try to maybe get a grip on what we're experiencing. And that's equally true of people on the right now, especially Catholic thinkers who are saying that somehow we're doing something to our, our natures that is unhealthy and that we need to think about, rethink what the human good is. And so I, I find myself inhabiting in my free moments those areas rather than getting into the scrum of the everyday. Yeah, and those are really hard things to figure out. I am one provisional kind of thought I have about this, which is that we've seen the collapse of other identities. You know, we've, we've seen the collapse of religious identities in the West, especially in America the last 20 years, so far as we can see. We've seen the decline of national identity on a quite significant scale. We've, we don't have the same kind of class identity solidarity that maybe you experienced in Detroit as a, as a kid. And so, the but the need to identify remains. And these transnational sort of feeling states become, or indeed one's racial coloration becomes a sort of refuge for people wanting to belong to something that they, they no longer belong to. Oh, that's right. Yeah, no, I, I have thought about that. And I think, you know, you, you put, it, put it better than I have. And one extra element of that is not just national belonging and so on. And, and here, I think there are people on the right that are focused on this, is that our, you know, our young people grow up without cousins. Our children grow up without cousins now. They grow up in families that fold up their tents and move on. How can that not have a profound psychological effect? I'm not saying that I'm not pulling the alarm, moral alarm bells about it and saying that somehow we have to live in a different way. This is the way we're living now. But it's not just, you know, the questions of globalization, decline of nationalism, turbo capitalism, neoliberalism and all of that. It's all these intimate things as well. And it's hard to find people who are somehow holding those two ideologically opposed concerns in their head at the same time, right? that there are all sorts of forces at work that are robbing us of a sense of belonging and a kind of topsoil in which 
We can draw nutrients before going on in our life. And we, if we don't put all of those things together, we're not going to understand where we are and what we might do in the future. If certain subjects are taboo on either side, then we're, we're at a kind of intellectual standstill. And I think we are. Unpack that a little bit for me about the the taboo nature of certain things. Like, give give me a taboo question on the on the right and on the left that, that we see money. Hi there. This is not the end of this podcast. In fact, we're only just getting going. If you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this, it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full. No extra charge. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and make sure your podcast is up to date with the DishCast. You'll be able to add it to your DishCast feed and never have this, hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you too for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy. AndrewSullivan.substack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money. And you also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday. Not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's dish cast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered, or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account. AndrewSullivan.substack.com. Subscribe and get the whole thing. Join the debate. Join the fun. Subscribe.